Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. Anne-Marie Giannino is parlaying her cancer diagnosis into advocacy, and she is a powerhouse. She works tirelessly She works tirelessly to engage the community through awareness programs and fundraising initiatives, and she ensures that everyone who suffers is heard. Anne-Marie, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've you know, been following Cancer You for a long time, so I'm super excited to be part of it. Oh, we are excited to have you too. I feel like I already know you. And then, of course, we talked a little bit before I press record. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't wait to hear your story. So can you take us back to the very beginning? Oh, for sure. So the I- irony is for seven years prior to my diagnosis, I'd been doing a lot of cancer volunteer, breast cancer volunteer work with an organization locally. So for seven years, I was working hard to raising money for an organization, building teams, being a team coordinator. And then um, one day in May, I rolled over and felt a lump just by rush- brushing my arm against my chest. And when I pressed the lump, I had black discharge come out of my nipple. And Whoa. yeah, I was, to say the least, freaked out for sure. I screamed to my then husband, you know, there's something going on here. And he, he actually like rolled his eyes like, oh God, here we go. Because I, <laughs> I had always found lumps. I had really lumpy breasts. And there is a difference between those lumpy breasts and then finding that lump. Like that lump is so different. And he pressed on it and he was like, oh, well, I guess black discharge should come out. <laughs> but that day I was actually spending, registering people for breast cancer, for a breast cancer walk. So I spent the whole day watching these survivors come in and out and I had this lump and it was eating me away inside. And finally I went to the director. I was like, I got to go. Like I was having such anxiety. And I called my doctor, I actually called my GYN because I had a baby four years prior. And, you know, when you have kids coming out so much, you just, that's who you go to. And I came in and saw him. He pressed my lump, saw the black discharge. He's like, I got to get you to an MRI right now. Yeah. Sent me for an MRI, black discharge all over the mammogram machine. She's like, well... I don't see anything on the machine. She's like, let's do a sonogram. She did a sonogram. She rolled over the lump. She's like, I feel it, but it's not coming up on your, on your, on the sonogram. And she, she, this is true. She checked normal on my sheet and told me to check back with my doctor in six months. You have black discharge and she checks normal. A hundred percent. She checked normal. So I want to ask you something before you continue. For sure. Why were you doing all this volunteer work for breast cancer if you hadn't even been diagnosed yet? I know there's something there. Yeah. So my paternal grandmother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was about five and she helped raise me and it really like made such an impression on me. You know, I remember her being in the hospital and I couldn't go because I was five and waving to her from the window. I mean, I just got goosebumps because it's like one of my really first strong memories and I would stay with her on the weekends and 
she had a lump, she had one breast removed. She went through mm. chemotherapy. I never saw her lose her hair. She never stopped cooking. She never stopped cleaning. I can remember her doing like wall walks after with her arm to like stretch out her, her muscles and whatnot. My cousin's a nurse and would help her with it. And I would stay at her house and she would take that bra off and it would leave indentations on her arm because her prosthetic was so heavy. Mm. And I remember so vividly the scars on her chest and you know, comically, I would take that prosthetic because she, you know, I was her princess. She let me do whatever. And I would be throwing it in the air. I'd put it on my head. And it was so heavy. Like, I remember feeling that and being like, how do you carry this all day? And it really, really made an impression on me. It really stuck with me. Sounds like it did. How how heavy was it, do you think? It was heavy. I mean, I used to, I used to do prosthetic fitting when I worked for this other company. And they've made, they've made, you know, prosthetics to be so lightweight now. And Airflow is great, but that thing had to weigh five, 10 pounds. Easy. And she was a wow. big breasted woman to begin with, but I, I remember the, the, the indentation on her shoulder. I remember feeling it and touching it and just, it just really struck me like what we have to do to our bodies to get rid of something. Wow. So that's why oh. I would, I, that's why, I, you know, tried to do my part, so to speak. Oh, that's amazing. All right. So back to your story. Sure. Black discharge, uh, black but the discharge, box is normal. Check normal. My <laughs> GYN is an amazing man. He has been with me for through four miscarriages, three live births. I have four kids, but he wasn't my first OB. Um, just a really great, kind person. And he's like, I'm not, I'm not buying this. This is not normal. And he started, he himself, not even the nurses, started calling breast surgeons and breast care doctors nobody would see me because they check normal on that. So he got a hold of this one doctor who was a friend of his and said, look, it's not normal. She got black discharge coming out. Like she needs to be seen. So I went in to be seen. Great. Awesome doctor. Um, she's like, Oh, it's just a papilloma. You're, you're fine. Don't even think twice about it. I'll remove it and you'll be good to go. And I just still was, it just was not sitting right with me. It really wasn't. So I had it removed, like lumpectomy is basically what they do. And I went to the doctors two weeks later to get, you know, to get checked, check the incision and all of that. And I had an eight o'clock appointment <clears throat> and I remember walking in and her sitting on the table waiting for her. And she came in. I, I mean, I knew before, but I knew that the minute she walked in, she's like, I really wish I would have read this last night. And she goes, I wish you weren't here alone. And I said, why? Because mm -hmm. I have cancer. And she's like, yeah, you do. She's like, I'm actually shocked right now. I was, you know, I was 40 years old, which is old, but it's young. You know, it's I, young. I yeah. was actually, uh, the year before I was in severe depression and I was suicidal and I hospitalized myself and it took me a year to climb out of that hole. So I was a personal trainer before I was in literally the best fit of my life. Like I was super healthy. I, you know, my weight was good. wasn't thin and she just couldn't believe it. She was really shocked. She encouraged me to get a second opinion, which I love about her <sighs> because, you know, not many doctors will encourage that. And she, I, I'll, I'll never forget it. She said to me, if you like the other doctor, go with the other doctor. I'm not offended. I'm not upset. If you connect with her <sighs> better, I got other patients right in back of you that I can see. And she didn't mean that in a mean way. She just meant like, which is so incredible because I've heard so many people tell me how their doctor made them feel for going to get a second opinion. And that's just bull. It just really is because a second opinion isn't because you don't trust that doctor. You're so scared. Like you want to make sure you're doing the right thing and getting a second opinion can validate that. 
I, I totally agree. And we always encourage that inside of Cancer U. And what I say to people is if you're getting a second opinion and your doctor pushes back, like you just said, um, you know, gives you a hard time about it, won't release your records, then you know, you need to get a second and third opinion because that per- that person definitely cannot be your doctor. Absolutely. Um, so it's awesome that this, it was an oncologist you were seeing? No, she was a breast care doctor. Okay. She was and, a breast care doctor. And so she, uh, so you got a second opinion? I got a second opinion. Okay. Um, the doctor that I saw was so blasé about it. She was like, oh, you can just get a lumpectomy and radiation and you'll be fine. I had just had a lumpectomy and they didn't, they couldn't even get it all. So clearly I, that wasn't an option. Um, and then she said something, she's like, your breast might be disformed, but what's the big deal? And I, I remember like I was, I'm 40, you know, and I don't care if you're 40 or if you're 60, you know, a woman's body is a woman's body. And she just was really blase about, it. I was like, well, she's not the doctor for me. So I stuck <laughs> with the one that, that I have. And, you know, to that point, what you said, and I think this is so important we hire our doctors. They are yes. actually employed by us. Yep. So if we want to fire them, we can get rid of that doctor. And I think, you know, they come in with that white coat. We're super scared. We're nervous. If they are not giving you a safe place to be able to really talk about what's going on, they're not the doctor for you. It's not just about their protocol. It's really creating an environment that I can go there and say, you know what? I have this incision. It's really hurting me. I don't know what's going on. What can I do? She gave me the option if I wanted to do a lumpectomy again and see if she could get out. She didn't feel confident that she could because she couldn't get clean margins the first round. So, right. And she, at first, she was like, we can do a unilateral mastectomy. And then I had, <clears throat> excuse me, an MRI would die. And the other sides showed a probable benign. Don't you love the words they use? Like, <laughs> probable benign. It's probably benign. But it's probably cancer. So she recommended a bite. A bite. I just, I don't even understand that. Like, I know. I agree. It's just, like, it's just like complex cyst. It's complex because we don't know if it's going to be cancer. But let's, let's leave it there. We'll watch and wait and see what happens. I mean, it's just all, we can't do, we have to change the language a little bit here. Yeah. Um, so she's, so what did you decide to do? I did a mastectomy. Um you know, oh, one, one breast, just the nope, one. I did a bilateral oh, with did. implants. Okay. You know, she had said to me, and this isn't her fault; it's societal. Who's your plastic surgeon? And I was like, I don't have a plastic surgeon, so I had to go find a plastic surgeon. But I wish more doctors would encourage women to go flat until their body could heal a little bit more yeah. and process the grieving of it. There is grieving involved in losing your breasts. It's an amputation. There's so much sensation that you lose and mentally that does play into it a lot and I really wish doctors would encourage that just a little bit because I probably would have went flat for a little bit because um after my mastectomy about a year and a half later I keloid really bad and so it's when your scar tissue wraps around and twists and becomes really knotted on the outside and a lot of people get them they're very flat they're not an issue mine actually looked like fingers they were so thick and um, wow. I was, I was, I couldn't even put my arms down. Like they hurt so terribly bad. And I went to the plastic surgeon for a checkup and I said to him, I, these scars are killing me. We have got to do something. He tried silicone strips. He tried irrigation. I mean, he tried literally everything. And he looked at me and he goes, your scars are the least of your problems. Your implants are slipping into your, into your armpits. And they tell you, and anyone who's had implants, you know, breast cancer or not, they tell you, okay, they're going to settle. 
Well, Andrea, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't never, and I never liked them to begin with. They settled all right into my armpits, but I thought that that's what happened. Like, I didn't know. No one tells you these, these hard parts, right? Thank you, cancer gave me 45 extra pounds at that time. And I had originally wanted the DIP or a tram surgery where they take your tissue or your muscle and turn it into breasts. But he was like, where do you want me to pull it from? You're 102 pounds. Like, that's not going to happen. Again, I have amazing breast cancer, a breast care doctor and a, and a plastic surgeon. And he's like, did you gain weight just for this? And he was joking. You know, he's a super great guy. So I decided to go back and do the DIP. Okay. And that is a very, it's 10 hour surgery, risk of failure. You, they make them bigger so that they can adjust it. And then nine months later, I have a whole nother mastectomy because I got to redo the whole breast again. It did help with the scars. And personally for me, it, it helped me mentally because I felt like I got my a little bit of myself back. Like I felt like cancer stole so much and I was like taking this back. I'm now of course covered in scars and, but that's, you know, I've learned to accommodate those and not hide them as much as I did in the beginning. Oh, so the implants came out. Implants came out. You had this procedure. What other treatment did you have other than surgery? If I had 33 rounds of radiation, which wow, radiation's so funny, right? Everyone's like, oh, you just had radiation. I'm like, yeah, radiated my body for 33 days. <laughs> like, I don't understand how that's just radiation. And you know, you're laying there on that slab with this massive machine over your head, all alone. You're in that room all alone. They line you all up and the staff is usually amazing. And my staff was fantastic. They were truly fantastic, but they run out of the room. And I used to yell to them all the time. What? No one's going to stay with me. You know, (laughs) they, they leave because it's radiation going into your body. Like this is, but I had major panic attacks there and it wasn't just of the radiation. It was of this machine falling on me. Like I really, it really freaked me out a lot. Um, through radiation though, I, I had a friend who, when I was diagnosed, she said to me, uh, you have too many kids, so I'm not going to ever take your kids. And she's one of my closest friends. And I can't cook. You cook for me, so I'm not going to bring you any dishes. The only thing I can offer you is to take pictures. And we were like, all right, what are we going to do with these pictures? So she took pictures through everything. Like we had a girlfriend night where they signed my chest, and she was there for all my mastectomies and all my surgeries. And to watch the progression like that is pretty incredible. And she did a lot of pictures where it was just from the, the neck down. And when I shared them on social media, people, it resonated with people because it got a conversation going, right? You know, yeah. oh, my scar doesn't go like that. I have, a, I have a, um, you know, a, an anchor. My scar is over to the left. And it just got people like seeing that you're not alone in this and people, you know, our bodies totally change. But she noticed that I had this mole that I had, or I didn't have in the beginning. And then during radiation, it came and it went and it came and it went, it came and it went. And again, you know, because we don't think about things like that. I, when I was at the plastic surgeon, I was like, ah, I got this mole. It keeps coming and going. I don't know what the heck it is. And the, and he looked at me and he's like, uh, yeah, moles that come and go aren't good. I got to take that out. And it was basal cell. You know, I swear it was from radiation. I mean, I know I'm a son. Like, I love the sun. It's like my, I need it desperately. But I use sunscreen. Like, I, I may be Italian, but... You know, this is, I use sunscreens. I, I really believe it was from radiation, which mm-hmm. studies show that that does happen. I mean, you're giving yourself a sunburn for 33 days. They don't prepare you for that part of it, you know? So I had all these like really weird little lumps and bumps that would happen along my way. I was cooking and I'm, I'm really short. I'm only 4'10", which cracks people up because 
I'm loud, so they think that I'm you know, <laughs> going to be bigger than I am. And my stove like comes right up to my chest. And I was cooking one day, not paying attention to tank top because I radiate heat. Went, took shower the next day, and I was like, oh, I got shower gel on my chest. And I went like this. It was my skin. I looked out, and my whole breast was burnt. And I <sighs> called my doctor, and I said, Tony, I think I just burned my boob. He, and he said, yeah, it, it really does happen. He said, and he said, I'm so glad you still don't have the implants in because when this has happened with implants, it's burnt right. You can actually see the implant. I know several people this has happened to. And he goes, put some Vaseline on it, take a picture, send it to me. I want to make sure that it's not infected or anything. And, you know, if I need to see you Monday because it was on the weekend. Take the picture, send it to him. I don't hear from him. I figure, oh, everything's fine. He calls me at 2 o'clock. He's like, you going to send that picture? I said, I did. He's like, not to my phone. And I pull my phone out and look. Sent the picture to my son's friend, whose name is Tony. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, that's really funny. Oh, God. <laughs> right? I love telling that story. I don't think my son loves it. But um, yeah, so I, I had weird things happen about six months after my mastectomy. I was feeling my breast and I was like, I think I feel a lump. And I called my breast care doctor and I said, I think I feel a lump. And she's like, that, what? You just had your mastectomy six months later. Come in right now. So I go in and she feels it. She's like, that's a lump. And I said, well, what do you want to do? She goes, well, we have one of three options. I can send you to the plastic surgeon. He can remove it. We can buy up, test it, blah, blah, blah. He was like, she goes, I can biopsy it, but because I don't really know what it is, I'm kind of nervous to do that because if I puncture it and it's something, she goes, or I can rip it out right here. What do you want me to do? And I said, well, what do you want to do? She's like, I want to take it out right here. She got her little plastic scalpel out and took it out. It was another probable benign, but I, my whole life, my body has just reacts and wants to grow cysts. It wants to grow something. I had a full oophorectomy after my mastectomy because I had precancerous cysts growing on my ovaries and on my fallopian tubes. And, you know, it was a mess that it was hard. Like that first year was really hard. When you open up a can of worms, you kind of open, everything comes right out and you realize all the change. I have nodules on my thyroid, you know, we, I don't, I don't think the greater population understands when you're diagnosed with cancer, how many other things play into, into that, uh, a year. Well, right in the beginning of my cancer process, my whole right side went numb. Couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't hear out of my ear. Was having like pins and needles really bad. And I had everyone tell me, oh, it's from treatment. Oh, it's from stress. Finally went to an ENT. And she's like, oh, you got TMJ. Take your muscle relaxers like a good patient and you'll be fine. And nobody would listen to me. I knew it was something else. And two years after my breast cancer diagnosis, I was diagnosed with MS. Yeah, I mean, it's, oh, it's actually quite wow. common to have an autoimmune after cancer, especially, you know, it, it almost awakens it in your yeah. body because you're going through so much. But I don't think people really understand, like, you're never really over this. So, yeah, I no, just rambled on completely. So I apologize for that. <laughs> Coffee I that I drank this morning kicking in. <laughs> you don't need to apologize. Oh my God, no. Tell me after that, lump was removed right there in the doctor's office. Did anything else happen or did you just have at least some time where your body was okay? Um, not really. So I um about three years ago now, I had this incredible pain underneath my breast. I mean, it was bad. And like, I'd be on the floor in fetal position. I'm pretty, I'm a pretty, I can take pain. Yeah. 
um, nothing was working and they sent me to a gastro. I had an endoscopy, had a colonoscopy, had it all. They couldn't find anything. Nobody would listen to me. I kept saying how bad the pain was. They were not listening to what I was saying. And I finally, another, a doctor that I originally wanted to see that had left my area moved back to the area. And I was like, I'm going to go see her. So I go to see her and her workup was like incredible. Like she sits with you for two hours. She's got this really long um, wellness survey that she goes through and she'll tell you every time you go, okay, you're 37% increased in your, in your livelihood. What has changed? Or you're 30% decreased in your livelihood. What's going on? Uh, and she really listened to me. She took 17 vials of blood. She gave me every scan, no demand. And sure enough, there was a really small piece of cancer underneath. It was buried underneath what's called, I have a floating rib Hmm. and it was buried underneath there. So she did, I did for about a year and a half, super low dose chemo because I have MS. My body reacts to medication much differently than anybody that who doesn't have an autoimmune, especially one that affects your nervous system. Sure. Uh, You know, my hair thinned a little bit, but it wasn't, I didn't lose any hair, but it was hard. You know, once a week, we didn't want to put a port in because she didn't want me to have another surgery. Uh, I'd go and get my IV inserted. She would do that. And she did uh, vitamin D and vitamin C. I'd get that. I, you know, she really, she changed my vitamins and my minerals. She upped everything. Uh, she ended up finding I had mold in my blood, like the highest content that anybody, she's, she's like, you shouldn't even be alive with this much mold in your blood. So I had to like detox my body from that. Once that all stopped about a year ago, it'll be a year in February. My God, like I felt so much better. Like my Mm. body just felt, I felt like myself. All the weight that I'd gained through cancer and steroids and all that good stuff started to come off. I was exercising better. I mean, I'm not, I'm in pain because I have MS and other health issues, but yeah, I didn't really get a break. (laughs) This doctor sounds very integrative and holistic. Yes. So she does mix modern medicine with, you know, old school medicine. She does everything from, you know, Reiki to, you know, chemotherapy to radiation. Like she doesn't leave a stone unturned. And I love that about her. Wow. Wow. Uh, She sounds fabulous. Yeah. What was your worst moment in all of this? So I, it's going to sound the worst, like absolute worst. Honestly, I was telling my kids. Oh, can you tell us a little more about that? It was hard telling them. I I don't lie to my kids. I'm very, very open and honest. You know, if they come to me about really hard subject or something that most parents would probably cringe from, I got no problem talking about it. I'm probably bringing it up to them. But when I found the lump, I told them that, you know, what the doctor said, they didn't think it was anything and I had to get it removed. And then I have to come back and tell them that I have cancer. Like, that's really hard on a kid because it seems like I'm lying to them. And that is how they took it. My older son really took it like we were lying. Uh, my youngest, who's 13 now, was four at the time. And that's where stupid on breast cancer came from because those were like cuss words, which is hilarious because <laughs> I swear like a trailer, like a truck driver. But I don't swear in front of my kids while I didn't any at that time. And he just looked at me and was like, stupid, dumb breast cancer. Oh, my gosh. That was from and your that, four-year-old? Yeah, that's where oh. it started. But, you know, I do believe you have to – you know, if they wanted to say F cancer, I'd be okay with that because they need something to let that out. They can't yeah. hold that in. There's so much going through their head. My then six-year-old was just cuddly. You know, he didn't want mommy to do, to get hurt or to be sad. And 
He also wanted, still wanted his good food. He was really worried about who was going to cook, but I was, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like that was a real concern to him because he is a major food snob at six. Oh my goodness. Oh, oh gosh. terrible. My 10 year old at the time was concerned. He's my caregiver. Um, mm. He was funny when I was looking through the pictures that my photographer had sent right after the mastectomy. And I said to him, do you want to see these? He's like, no. He's like, yes, no, yes, no. I was like, Sam, do you want to see him? Yes or no? He's like, no, I think I do. So I showed him these very graphic images of my then mutilated chest, black and blue, drains coming out. And he looks at me and he's like, oh, thank God. I was like, thank God. I was like, you okay? He's like, mom, I thought you were going to have two gaping holes there. Oh, but you're a gosh. kid, right? That makes so, so much sense. It does. So, like, I got a lot of grief for showing my kids those pictures, but to them, it, it, it alleviated so many fears that they had in their head, so many. But my older son, who lives with OCD, is high anxiety, is a hypochondriac, thinks he has every disease known to man, <laughs> was the hardest one to tell. And I'll never forget it. He pushed his plate away. He lied to me. How could you lie to me? Am I going to get cancer because I, I breastfed off of you? How, what's our life going to be like? How old yes, was he? he? He was 12 at the time. Okay, so four to 12, four kids. Yep. Wow. And he ended up writing a really amazing piece for Marie Claire magazine where he talked about why it was so hard. You know, he was so angry, and but there's no cancer in front of him, right? So he was angry at me. He took a lot of anger out on me, didn't want to come see me in the hospital, didn't want to be around me when I had treatment, but it was because I looked sick. Yeah. You know, he saw me, I, like I said, I'm only 4'10", but he saw me as this really taller than you think because he always felt like oh. I was taller than, and when he came home that day and I was sitting in this, you know, recliner with these drains hanging out, it was hard for them. And I think that was honestly the hardest part is you rip your kid's innocence away, you know, they're going about their life playing soccer and then the, the next minute their, their parents got cancer. That's scary and it's heavy. Yeah. You know, so that was, I think that was my worst moment. I mean, I could think of other things that were hard, but that was the worst. Actually, I got a lot of messages from people afterwards. Thank you for sharing this with me. Now I understand what my kid's going through. I think oh. my kid's been feeling the same because we don't know what kids are going through, right? And our, our, our kids want to protect us. They don't want us to see their true emotions through all of this because they're so scared and they're scared we're going to die. Like sure. that is... That is scary. And I tried to reassure them with people that I knew that that had gone through cancer. That doesn't matter. It's still your mom, you know? So Yeah, and that's a tough age, right? I so I think that that is the toughest age, whether you call it middle school, junior high, but that 12 yeah. to 13 years old, it's just a hard age anyway. Yeah, and, you know, I was very vocal about my diagnosis, and I became very known in the community because I did a lot of fundraising for my local nonprofit. And he wanted to go to school and have no one talk to him about cancer, but everyone would be like, Oh, how's your mom? How's your mom doing? And they all were wearing my stupid dumb breast cancer shirt. So while he wanted to like go to school and just escape it, it was engulfed in him. So he was, mm -hmm. and then he's, he's an overthinker who's a hypochondriac. So he, I mean, he thought he had MRSA. He's had a brain tumor. He's had an eye cancer. I mean, the kid has had everything known to man, but he hasn't had any of it. <laughs> Is he doing okay today? Uh, the pandemic hasn't been great for him. It's kind of the perfect storm, but super protective of me during the pandemic. Didn't want me to leave the house. Didn't want me to go anywhere. Was, you know, very, didn't want anyone to be around me. He was extremely protective of the whole situation. But yes, he is doing much better. Thank you for asking. 
What was your best moment in all of this? So there's this moment. Um, I had a no crying rule, which uh, looking back, I never should have done that because when I finally broke down, my whole family was like, oh my God, what's wrong? Yeah, I'm well, sure. They panicked, right? They, they panicked. And I'm the one that, you know, holds the parties. I'm the one that cooks. I'm the one that everyone goes to for everything. And I mean, I got a large Italian family. So I, when I say everyone, I mean everyone. But my father is extremely emotional. He's a very, very emotional man. Mm-hmm. And he wears his heart right on his sleeve. My mom died when I was one. So he's played that part of mother and father quite well. But he's oh. extremely emotional. And I'll be honest, like I had the no crying rule because of him. When I came home, when I found out I was diagnosed, he was watching my four-year-old at the time. And I walked in and he was like, well, what happened? I was like, well, I got cancer. And he started to cry. And I said, don't do it. Do not cry right now. I just found this information out. You're not going to cry. I said, this is my cancer. This is how I'm going to handle it. Don't cry. I don't want anyone crying. He left, of course, sobbed in the car. But I had to have this no crying rule. So right after my mastectomy, I wore stilettos into my mastectomy. Uh it was nice. a power thing for me. Like I said, I'm 4'10", so I've always worn six-inch heels. Four-inch heels are like flip-flops to me. But it, it, I needed them. I needed to see that I was going to be able to stand on these shoes again. Like it was, it was almost like a security blanket. So right after the mastectomy, I'd gotten back to my recovery room, and I was like, they wanted me to walk. And I said, okay, I'm going to put my heels on. And the nurses are like, you are not walking the halls <laughs> in those heels. I mean, they are six-inch bad ass shoes like beautiful <laughs> pink glittery and my my best friend's girlfriend or daughter bought them for me and I said oh no I'm putting these on so um I'll probably cry saying this one I put them on and uh my dad was there and he held on to me he held on to me but I was like gripping him with all I had and he was so strong he didn't cry he didn't want me to walk in those shoes, <laughs> but he didn't cry. He just let me like really hold on to him. And I don't think he really understand stood like I was holding on to him because I like needed him to be strong for me at that moment. And he was, and I think that was my best moment because I, I didn't think my father would be able to <laughs> cry. And I needed him to not cry. I only walked about, you know, 10 feet and then they made me go back in and, you know, I had drains hanging down. It, it's a funny picture because everyone that looks at it is always like, oh, you got great legs. I'm like, does anyone not see the four drains that are hanging from right there? But I guess not. So, well, maybe they was, don't want to see, right? No, they don't. It kind of blends anyways. But that was, I think, my best moment. Oh, God. That's so beautiful. Thank and you. I bet a part of him knew that he needed to be strong for you. I think he did, which is funny because my dad's not really like that. Like he'll just, he can't, he can't help his emotions, but I was super proud of him for doing that. It meant a lot. What is the one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning of your this cancer journey? so easy for me. Because oh, good. I can't wait to hear yeah. it. <laughs> at the beginning part of this, I said to my friend Genevieve, who took my pictures, I said, God, I just can't wait to be done with this. I can't wait to just take, just, get these breast removes and just be done with it. I wish someone would have told me you're not done with it. Cause I was so naive. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I didn't think people died from this still. I didn't, I didn't know. Like I had no idea. And you know, back when I started blogging nine years ago, the bloggers that were out were renegades. You know, they were making a change. They wanted a change for research. They wanted a change for language. They wanted to stop talking about mammograms and everything else and flip the, page and 
I became, I became in this great circle of women who happened to be all stage four and you're not done with this. Like I watched them all die. I mean, I sat by their bedside while they were dying and I wish somebody would have told me you're, this isn't over. Like you don't, you don't just have cancer and then be done with it. It's with you for life. Now, whether you're super healthy or not, you still have to go for checkups and you have, you have health issues after there's, that's what I'm talking about. Your body changes. I yeah. have no idea about any of that. Like I just thought I was going to have my breast removed and be done with it. That's not what happened at all. I would say it's going to suck. It's going to suck for a long time. It's going to absolutely suck. But you know what? It's not going to suck alone. You have this incredible community right here ready to support you. And maybe my story doesn't resonate with you. Maybe Jen's does or maybe Tracy's does or maybe Lucy's does or maybe Joe does because men get breast cancer too. You know, right. you don't know whose story you're going to connect with. That's why it's so important to do things like you're doing right here to share each other's stories because we never know whose story is going to matter to somebody else. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I love that. I, I Yeah, I just really appreciate you sharing it, you know, sharing that advice. I find out that people are diagnosed. It's so hard now because we know. Like, you know what they're going to go through. You know yeah. it. And just you just want to just, like, hold them in. Uh, as, as I was talking about those people that, um, that I became friends with, those bloggers, I became very close with a, a woman named Sephora. And she was about four, three hours from me. I mean, we became besties. We would FaceTime all the time. Like, you know, we face, I put the computer on the table. She'd eat dinner with us. You know, when it was Hanukkah, we would light candles with her, although I'm not Jewish, but she was. And um, <laughs> she was stage four and she was 34 years old. She never was married, never had kids. And that's just not right. And right before she became, uh, incoherent and slipped into a coma she said to me be my voice and that is the reason why I will never stop talking about breast cancer so exactly what you said I've had so many scenarios I could just think of them as you were talking about the story and about your friend and where I've just been like all right let's talk about this or do you need a card do you want me to connect you with someone here make sure you go to this resource you know I just can't stop that. I hear her always in my ear saying, be my voice. And part of it is, is talking about the stage four community, you know, as an early stager, you, you have to acknowledge that because, you know, 30% of us can become metastatic. That's just the number that is thrown out there. I'm pretty sure it's pretty higher than that by now, but you know, there's a whole host of reasons why we don't know the exact numbers, but listening to everybody's story, just listening and sharing it is important. I don't care what your stage is, but you know, our stage four community needs more. We need more research dollars. This is not right. It just isn't. Oh, I think you already answered my next question, but I'm still going to ask it. <laughs> um, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., what would it be and why? Well, I mean, research is the obvious part, but I'm going with mental health on this because, um, you know, I have an enormous mental health rap sheet. I'm a two-time suicide survivor. I'm a, I'm in recovery, and nobody asked me if I needed help. Like mm. nobody. It was a year out of my treatment. My doctor pats me on the back. See you next year. Sends me on my way. And I remember coming home and just sobbing. Like, what the hell just happened to me? Did I have cancer? Like, I, and the year before I was hospitalized. <laughs> like, nobody wanted to check in on my mental health. What what is my family's mental health? My kids' meant no one's checking on that. This is like life altering. And you may, you may not be diagnosed stage four, but you are facing a fatal illness because you can die from this and yeah. no one's checking mental health. 
That is absolutely absurd. When you're diagnosed, they should say to you, here's this number. I'm going to sit right here. You're going to call this number. They're going to connect you with a cancer mentor. From there, you guys can make a connection. They'll talk you through it. They'll be there if you need support. And then we'll let you know when group therapy is. Because I don't need to do a one-to-one. I mean, I go to therapy, but sitting in a group of people who have been diagnosed with cancer is so much more uh, therapeutic to me because we've all been there. But we yeah. need more in our mental health for any illness, but especially cancer. Like you should, every single person should go to therapy during their cancer process. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you think you don't need it. You will eventually, it will hit you and you won't even realize it's coming. You know, that I would say is one of two very common themes that I hear yeah. when I ask that question, mental health and integrative medicine. A hundred percent. Are you ready to lighten things up and do the Thriver rapid fire questions? You got it. <laughs> I hope I don't say anything inappropriate. Oh, no. Go ahead. I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Rolling Stones. What is one word that best describes you? Princess. <laughs> okay, so not the word I was thinking. Oh my god! Oh, that's awesome. Okay, so I think not everyone called me pretty, pretty princess. Oh, my kids funny! And everybody. Wow. No, I think you're a queen. You're not a princess. Um, queens, queens do too much work. Oh, okay. Okay, there you go. Um, <laughs> Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Oh, gosh. Um, probably Good Riddance from Green Day. Uh, oh, that song breaks my heart. You want to know something about that song? Yeah. Every time I walked into treatment, that song would come on either in my car or when I walked into the doctor's office. Every single time. No joke. Wow. Like it got to me the point where my girlfriend was like, are you a witch? Like, this is weird. Every single time. Oh. I think that's on. I actually have a sentence I'm going to say, though, on my deathbed. Well, that's coming up, so hold that one. Uh, okay. The last meal Great. you want to eat. I mean, my grandma's lasagna, but she's been gone for years. But that would be, like, the last meal I'd want to eat. Because she could make, like, a 10-layer lasagna, and that would, like, stand up. Like, there was no joke about it. It was... The most amazing lasagna on the planet. Ten layers of noodles? Yes. Oh, my God. goodness in the middle of it. Oh, it was just incredible. And it would stand up. Like, I, mine just falls apart. I don't know what she did. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is the last person you want to see? I mean, my kids. But to be honest with you, I would want to see my mother. Oh. So I would want her to welcome me into that next stage. Oh, I love it. And the last words you will speak. It's going to be. And I never mowed a lawn. Those are I your never, last words, Amber. This has been my joke for as long as I have lived. I've never mowed a lawn. And I've said repeatedly that when I die, I'm going to say, and I've never mowed a lawn. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, I don't think I ever have either. See? Don't ever do it. If you've never mowed one, don't do it now. Yeah, I don't think I ever have. Yeah, it's just been a running joke. Aside from Cancer U, what is one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also, how can people get in touch with you? You know, breastcancer.org is a great resource. I think they have a, a good variety of things there. I Had Cancer is probably a great place for people to hang out so that they can connect with their caregiver, with caregivers, supporters, and 
thrivers. I think that network is pretty awesome. And it's all cancers, which I think is great too, because we can learn from other cancers. So those would be my two go-to. I mean, Breast Cancer Research Foundation is phenomenal and Metaviver too, but those are more research-based. So if you're looking for support, I had cancer and breastcancer.org. Okay. We'll make sure those are in the show notes. And if people want to get in touch with you, what is the best way? Find me stupidonbreastcancer.com, Stupid on Breast Cancer on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. And, you know, I have mental health too. What would you miss? You can find me on any of those platforms. And I'm always willing to answer a message. I never leave them unread. Oh, thank you so much. That's awesome. We'll put those links as well. And Emery, thank you for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for having me. It was really great hanging out with you and chatting. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, true stories 